morning we're continuing in Galatians. Uh, we're in Galatians chapter 4, um, and we're going to continue what Paul has been uh, teaching to the Galatian believers about following false doctrine, about getting caught up, forgetting who Jesus is, forgetting what we're about, forgetting what God is doing. So uh, if you have your Bibles, turn to Galatians chapter 4, verse 8. It'll also be up on the screen. Before you Gentiles knew God, you were slaves to the so-called gods that do not even exist. So now that you know God, or should I say now that God knows you, why do you want to go back again and become slaves once more to the weak and useless spiritual principles of this world. You are trying to earn favor with God by observing certain days or months or seasons or years, and I fear for you. Perhaps all my hard work with you was for nothing. Dear brothers and sisters, I plead with you to live as I do in freedom from these things, for I have become like you Gentiles, free from those laws. You did not mistreat me when I first preached to you. Surely you remember that I was sick when I first brought you the good news. But even though my condition tempted you to reject me, you did not despise me or turn away. No, you took me in and cared for me as though I were an angel from God or even Christ Jesus himself. Where is that joyful and grateful spirit you felt then? I am sure you would have taken out your own eyes and given them to me if it had been possible. Have I now become your enemy because I am telling you the truth? Those false teachers are so eager to win your favor, but their intentions are not good. They are trying to shut you off from me so that you will pay attention only to them. If someone is eager to do good things for you, that's all right. But let them do it all the time, not just when I'm with you. Oh, my dear children, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains for you again, and they will continue until Christ is fully developed in your lives. I wish I were with you right now so I could change my tone, but at this distance, I don't know how else to help you. You can feel a little bit of Paul's frustration here, his sadness, uh, his concern, obviously, for this church who is being led astray by a false doctrine. This is one of the more personal appeals in the New Testament, and certainly from Paul. Uh, We've spent a lot of time in the first couple of chapters of Galatians talking about Paul's theology, talking about his doctrine, and, and teaching about who Jesus is, and what salvation is, and what it looks like to walk in freedom. And you can see as Paul gets further along in this letter, his frustration growing, and his sadness, and his concern for this church that no matter what he says, they might not get it. Um, I'm sure all of you at one point in your time have, at one point or time in your life, have been that way about something. Uh, whether it was trying to explain something to students or to your kids or to people at work, and then you, you explain the right thing, you explain the truth over and over and over again, and they just don't seem to get it. It just goes right over their head or they nod at you with the 3,000-foot stare, and you know they're not getting it. And that's what, that's what Paul is struggling with here. The problems facing the Galatian Christians is the same problem facing us today. We would rather rely on ourselves and receive the praise of men 
then be shaped by Christ and have all the glory go to him. That's what the Galatian Christians struggled with some 2,000 years ago almost. And that's what we struggle with today. We want to feel good about this thing we're doing called life. And in many cases, we want to feel good about Christianity. And we want people to tell us that we're good. And we want people to tell us that we're amazing. And they want people to, to build us up and to puff us up and to lift us up as opposed to letting our lives be controlled by Christ, surrendering to him, walking in the freedom that he provides, and letting all the glory go to him. That's what we want. It's a hard truth. It's a hard truth that Paul is trying to convey to the Galatian Christians here, and he's worried they won't, that they won't get it. And, and look at verses uh, 16 uh, through 16 and 17 again really quick. He says, those false teachers are so eager to win your favor. They're so eager to win your favor. Have you ever had anybody who you could tell was buttering you up? Okay. I mean, it happens with kids. Gee, Dad, I love you so much. Okay. What do you want? What is it that you want? Okay, I mean, but then you also have adults, not just, not just kids, but you have adults who are buttering you up because they want something. And you can tell many times that their praise of you and the accolades that you're heaping on you are not real. Like it's, it, it feels wrong and you're going, this person is setting me up for something. And that's what Paul is telling the Galatian believers that these false teachers are doing. He's saying they're using smoke and mirrors. They're trying to win your favor. They're trying to make you feel good. They're doing all the things they can do to make you feel really good so that you will ignore the fact that they're teaching you lies, that they're not teaching you the truth of God's word. And here's the worst part. Y'all are buying it. Not only are they selling garbage, you're buying it. And you're buying it because it looks pretty, because it's in a pretty package. Jesus in John chapter 5 verse 44 says, no wonder you can't believe, exclamation point. I mean, he's saying this harsh. He's, no wonder you guys can't believe. You gladly honor each other, but you don't care about the honor that comes from the one who alone is God. You don't care about that. What you're concerned with is if I got honor, if God got honor, great, but as long as I got honor, cool. If I got honor and God didn't get any, I'm fine with that too because at least I got honored. So Jesus and Paul are teaching the same principle here, which is one of your biggest problems is you're focused on you and what you're getting out of this thing, and you're not focused on God's glory and being shaped into Christ. You want to be shaped into you. Psalm 115, 1 through 4 says, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name goes all the glory for your unfailing love and faithfulness. Why let the nations say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens, and he does as he wishes. Their idols are merely things of silver and gold shaped by human hands. The psalmist is saying the same things here. I want all the glory, all the honor, all the praise to go to God. And it doesn't matter if the nations all say, where's your God? My God's in the heavens. 
and all the honor and praise and glory goes to him, you can keep your idols that you made with your own hands. You created that. Now, many times today, at least not in our particular culture, certainly other cultures in the world, but we don't necessarily go around making idols. There are other cultures that do outside of the United States, and there are subcultures within the U.S. that do. But typically, those of us in this room have not really sat around with anybody who made an idol and then set it on a table and put candles around it and worshiped it. If you step outside of that and, and go, wait a minute, you're worshiping something you made. Aren't you worshiping yourself? You, you really are at the end of the day. If, 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 if you had to fashion the thing you worship, how, how is that God? One, one of the things I love, Ravi Zacharias watched him talk to a group of college students, and they were talking about this, this idea of God and God being a man-made concept, or, or that God somehow is bound by time and space and all of these things. And Zacharias said very clearly, listen, if God is small enough for my brain to comprehend it, he's not worth worshiping. And if you, if you think about that from the outside, if God is not worthy of all the glory— if everything doesn't belong to him anyway, he's not worth worshiping. He's something I created. And something I created can fail. And something I created doesn't play by the rules. It's Calvin Ball. All right? It's Calvin. You guys ever read Calvin and Hobbes? Calvin and his little toy tiger Hobbes, they make up the rules of the games as they go. And then nobody really knows what the rules are because they're all just making it up. That's what Paul is saying here. Guys, just making this up. And you're buying it. True freedom, listen, true freedom in Christ will cost you your pride and your ambition and your need for praise. Don't mishear me. I'm not saying praise is a bad thing. In fact, the Bible teaches clearly, and I would say we should be people who encourage. We should be people who praise each other and lift each other up and build each other up around the right things. So I don't want to praise you for looking good. I don't want to praise you for sounding good. I don't want to praise you for those things. I want to praise you for being surrendered. I want to praise you for being generous. I want to praise you for being kind. And all of these things that God values that are in the shape of Christ, we should absolutely praise each other for those things. But I think many of us, especially again today in our culture, we crave praise from people. I mean, Facebook exists for that very purpose, is so that people can like our stuff, and we believe that they're, they like us, and they're building us up, and they're really our friends, and oh, this is amazing. And then one day we post a picture, and we think it's super awesome, and two people like it, and now we're crushed for a week. Only two people liked my post. Okay. Great. But not to belittle it, the need for praise and the need for people to validate who you are is a chain that we hang around our own necks. We pick that thing up and we drop it right, right there and then we walk around like this because nobody's praising me. Nobody thinks I'm amazing. And then that completely hinders what we're trying to do with Christ because now I'm focused on me and nobody likes me. There's a flip side to that though. Because the world knows, and all you got to do is watch the commercial to know this. The marketers of the world, 
The salesmen of the world, the manipulators of the world, from time eternal know this about you. In fact, they know things about you you don't know. If you ever wonder if they do, go look at market research on how to manipulate people through ad campaigns. And it will tell you what you need to know about you that they know that you don't. Because they know what you want. And they start, not at my age, 43, not at my age, but at these guys' age. Hey, mom, can I have a, well, I saw that 15 times on, you know, while I was watching the Disney Channel. The same commercial. Because they're preying on my needs to be lifted up. I will tell you this point blank. If anything caters to your pride or to your ego or to your desire to be important or to your comfort, it is not the truth and it is not shaped like Christ, no matter how shiny it is. If it is focused on you, in fact, if the word you appears... And that something that person is doing is for you, don't swallow that stuff. I'm serious. I'm serious. And I I hate to tell you this. City Church is not here for you. We're not. We're here to give God the glory in all the ways. What we want for you is to join us in that so that we can all together experience the freedom that comes from being the family of God and being on mission with him and being shaped like him together. That's what we're inviting you to do. But I promise you, we're not here to make you feel better about you. In fact, we couldn't teach 96% of the Bible if we wanted to make you feel better about you. What I want you to do is feel better about him to trust him, to seek him, to chase him. You will notice, and I think after two years, some folks finally started to believe us when we said, we ain't doing that stuff. I mean, you're not going to see City Church run marketing campaigns to talk about how great our, you know, gourmet coffee is. Jamie makes a great cup of coffee. It's terrific. But that's not why we're here. We put the coffee out there because some of you are not morning people. (laughs) And we want you to be awake for the duration of this time. I'm, I'm only half kidding, but not really. Um, right, so it's, it's not about any of those things. It's not about the pipe and drape. It's not about how the environment feels or whether we got the lights situated right. We, we do all of that because we want to co- create an environment that's not distracting to your worship, that is conducive to your worship. But if this is what you're here for, you're here for the wrong reason. We're here to glorify God with everything that we do and say. And teach. I love this quote from Brad Lominick. It is better to be in anonymity and be marked by God than to be in the spotlight and marketed by men. Let that sink in for a minute. I would challenge you, I would, in fact, I would say, If you can think right now about the most godly person you know, is that person in the spotlight? Is that person on the New York Times bestseller list? Does that person have a million-dollar home? 
I would challenge you. Because what, what's true about godly people and people that are really seeking after God in most of the ways, not that they can't have fortune and not that they can't have goods and those things, but it's not what they're after. And even if they have it, you wouldn't know it. You really, you really wouldn't know it. Because that is someone who's shaped like Christ. They are shaped for Christ's purpose. Wade talked about Galatians chapter 3 verse 5 a couple of weeks ago. I want to revisit it just for a second because it's important to this discussion. Because Paul is pulling all of this into this paragraph that he's giving. He says, I ask you again, does God give you the Holy Spirit and work miracles among you because you obey the law? Of course not. It's because you believe the message you heard about Christ. What he's saying here is, I want to remind you again, your freedom in Christ and what you have in Christ is not by anything that you've earned. Whether it's obeying the law or not, whether it's obeying festivals and seasons and Lent and showing up at the right time for the right thing, and oh, I went to 17 services between Christmas Eve and Christmas night, that's all super glad you had the time to do that. Paul is not, is saying that has no, it does not make a blip on God's radar. He's not impressed by you doing that. Yes, he wants you around his people. He wants you in his house. But the very act of going there, apart from turning yourself over to God, is a waste of time. And it doesn't matter what denomination you're in. We can pick literally every denomination, including our own, and pick the things that we can easily attach onto and exchange those things for a relationship with God, including service, including working hard. We used to joke in my family about people who would say, well, I'm just suffering for Jesus. No, you're suffering for you because you're a martyr. And it makes you feel good when people come up to you and go, oh, you poor thing, you've just been working so hard. I know. It's for Jesus all to him. <laughs> I mean, how many times have we heard that, right? And we're tempted to do that ourselves. We're tempted to do that ourselves because we want the glory to go to us and not to God. Look back at uh, Galatians four nineteen through 20. He says, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains. I don't know if you guys know this, but labor pains is probably the worst thing. Like, especially without some kind of anesthesia. He says, I feel as if I'm going through labor pains with this deal. It's hurting me that much. And I'm going to continue there until Christ is fully formed in you. I wish I was with you because I feel like I'm writing this letter and you're not going to get it. And it's going to have a tone that you're going to get offended by and you're going to get your feelings hurt because I'm writing in this tone. I wish I was there. I don't really know what else to do for you. We've given you the gospel. We've shown you who Jesus is. We showed you what he did. You've seen the evidence in our lives and particularly in my life. I was a person who murdered his followers. And you saw how he turned me around and what the real gospel is. And I'm preaching the same gospel, to remind you, I'm preaching the same gospel as the apostles in Jerusalem are preaching. And as everybody spread across the Mediterranean is preaching, we're preaching the same gospel. And you've heard it. And you've heard it again. And now I'm writing you a letter again. And I'm worried I can't do anything else for you because you're just not willing to do it. You would rather follow 
the people teaching the false doctrine because they build you up and earn your favor and tell you how cool, they, uh, how cool you are. You can feel that coming through in what Paul is writing here. What he's saying is that freedom, and the reason he's having these labor pains until Christ is fully formed, because what he's saying is that freedom looks like Jesus. It doesn't look like you and what you want. Jesus, take the wheel. The, the reason that the song asks Jesus to take the wheel is because the person behind the wheel is a bad driver. Not of the car, but of her life. She's acknowledging to God, I'm a terrible driver of my life. Not only did I almost wreck this car and kill my child, but I have wrecked my life because I have my hands on the wheel and you're sitting next to me and I won't let you take it. And if you'll just take the wheel, I'll have the freedom that you want me to have because you are the best driver by a long shot, infinitely better driver I want to be the sculptor of my life. When my kids were little, they'd come home with these clay sculptures. All you have kids or have been around this, you've seen it. They come home with this, Daddy, I made you a coffee cup. It does appear to be in the shape of something that might hold liquid. Whether or not it's a coffee cup, I do not know, but I think I can pour liquid in there and it'll hold it for a second. Right? And then you go to the cabinet, and there's the coffee cup. And I sit that down next to the coffee cup, and I go, you know what? This is me, and this is God. I I think I'm the sculptor of my life, and I'm over here just sculpting and chipping away. And I, you know, I'll turn around, and people come in the room, hey, what do you guys think? And everybody's like, oh, uh, (laughs) what? Right? God's over there sculpting David. He's sculpting the Sistine Chapel. He's painting the ceiling. And I'm over here with my watercolor painting stick figures and thinking it's awesome. Hey, guys, look what I did. And nobody, you know, praises me for it. And so now I'm in the dumps. I'm a little, I'm standing. And, and it, honestly, I'm just trying to make this as clear as possible. You are standing on the floor of the Sistine Chapel asking someone, Amadeo, to look at your painting of the stick figure. Look how awesome this is. And everybody's going, holy cow. And you're mad because they're not looking at your painting. Wow. Paul, gosh. What he's saying is we're molding into the shape of Christ. We are sculpted like Christ when we put our faith in him alone and let him do it and take our hands off the wheel. And we don't need anybody to tell us we're a good driver or our car looks really good. We just let him take it. If he's powerful enough to save us, he's powerful enough to shape us. He doesn't just leave us there. It's one of the beauties of the gospel is that upon salvation, he doesn't just leave us there. The promise before Jesus goes back to heaven is I'm going to send my spirit and actually you're going to be better off than if I stayed because if I stay in this form, I'm finite and I'm bound by time and space and I can only do so much. But if I leave and I send you my spirit, he's going to be everywhere at all times inside you. And if you'll just let him control you, you will be more powerful and more effective and more free than you ever could have been. Most of us have two problems. We've either become so comfortable in our place 
in the world. Or we've become so envious of everybody else's place in the world that we're not interested in what being shaped like Christ means. I'm either so self-satisfied that I think I've got it all together and I have no need for Christ, or I feel like everybody else has it better than I do and I'm constantly looking at what they have and looking for them to give me some of it instead of desiring what Christ has for me. That's what we all do. It's part of being human. It's part of being sinful. So Paul's appeal here, when what, how it gets personal, is Paul is saying, go back to that faith you had when it was new. Do you remember when you first recognized your need for Christ and you exercised that faith in him to save you without reservation and you were so glad and thrilled to do it and you knew if you didn't do it in that moment, you may die and go out into eternity without Christ and so your faith was free and it was full and it was big and it was joyful and you came running to Christ with open arms And what he's saying is you have to go back to that spot. And he uses a personal appeal. And some of you may not know, Paul had, as far as we can tell from the scholars and from history and from his own writings, he had a very serious eye condition that may have eventually resulted in blindness. Some scholars think that is the thorn in his flesh that he talks about. Other scholars have different opinions, but the majority of scholars think that Paul's thorn in his flesh may have been his eyesight. And the fact that he progressively went blind over the course of his life. When he's talking about being with the Galatians the first time, he's talking about having this issue with his eyes. And you can imagine Paul standing up there teaching and his eyes are red and they're kind of watery and he's a short balding guy anyway and he is not attractive. We're not talking about an attractive person and he's a little ornery. Okay, like he's a little edgy and he's ornery and his eyes are watery and red and maybe pussy and he's trying to teach the gospel to these people and what he's saying is, you know what, you guys didn't care then because you were dead in your sins. You didn't need all these trappings. You didn't need all the beauty. You didn't need the big stage. You didn't need the big kids ministry. You didn't need the big cafe. You didn't need the bar. You didn't need any of that. All you needed at that time was Jesus and it didn't matter that I was standing up there looking like a mess. I was telling you the truth, and you loved it. And you would have popped out your own eyes and given them to me if you could, so I wouldn't be in this shape because you were so thankful and joyful for what Christ had done. That's where the magic happens. But we get far afield from that moment, and everything's going okay, and we're just kind of doing the church thing, and and we're doing the life thing, and We leave that all behind. And then all of a sudden, we're falling into the trap that's laid for us by people who don't care about us, don't love us. They care about themselves. And so they're making us feel good so that they can get more. That's what marketers do. I make you feel good about coming to buy my product so I can make a profit. (laughs) I don't really care whether or not you like my my product or whether or not it even improves your life, as long as you bought it. Because then I made a profit. 
When we start to be shaped by the world more than by Christ, God calls us to remember who Jesus is and how he rescued us. He calls us to remember this hunger that we had for the truth of the gospel. And he says, if you'll find your way back there, the Bible calls it finding your way back to your first love. My wife and I celebrate our 17th wedding anniversary Saturday, yesterday. 17 years that poor thing put up with me. But what I have found as a husband, and obviously marriage is hard regardless of the personalities. But what I have found as a husband is the thing to come back to when you're your most aggravated. And I know she's done this like three times as much as me. But the thing to come back to when you're most aggravated is I love that woman. And not only that, she's worthy of it. People ask me, what's the main reason you love your wife? Because she's worth it. She is worth the investment of my life because of who she is. It doesn't matter if I'm aggravated on, with her on a Tuesday. It doesn't matter if I don't think she should, I think she should have agreed with me on this issue and she didn't. What matters overall is that I love her because she's worth it. So the question for you and God is, do you love God because he's worth it? Because he's worthy of the worship? Or do you love him because of what he can do for you? I will tell you, if you love him because of what he can do for you, you will quickly follow everybody that tells you God's going to do this for you if you do this. Instead of what Paul says, which is, turn your hearts to Christ, be shaped by him, and the rest of this stuff will fall away. And you won't need anything else but Christ. And all these things that you're striving for and struggling for and losing sleep over and crying in the dark of night to get won't matter to you anymore because you have Christ and he's enough. I want to leave you with this quote from John Piper. He says, Therefore, I urge you, take your amateur hands off of the clay of your life and yield yourselves into the sovereign hands of God. Disavow the praise of men and all of your efforts to achieve it. Turn your hearts to Christ and say, I am not my own. You have bought me. Forgive me. Be formed in me.